Now, another fun fact about me is I really, really cannot stand tartar sauce, which normally comes on a lot of these fish sandwiches. So I think I'm going to go for a honey mustard instead. Uh, seems like a safe option. Okay, on so we're, fish? I, what, what would you recommend? Honey mustard on fish. Oh, look, look. They're advertising the fish right there on the window. Limited time only. That means until Easter. Exactly. Hey guys, welcome to CNA Newsroom. This is the podcast that brings you great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Lent began this week, so I hope you got your ashes. I hope you've decided what you're giving up. I hope you've taken all the candy that's hidden in your desk or at home and put it somewhere else so that you won't eat it until Easter. I haven't done that. I had some candy this morning, but I'm going to get on it soon. We are talking about Lent this week. We spoke with Matthew Schmitz of First Things about some interesting dispensations for Lent. And we looked into a very interesting dispensation in the Archdiocese of Detroit. And I will share an essay I wrote back in 2017 about Lent and finding Christ in the desert. So stick around. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. I'm joined right now by Matthew Schmitz, who is the senior editor of First Things Magazine, a columnist at the Catholic Herald, who is regularly published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and other newspapers, and who is also, to my great surprise, and I think to the great surprise of many people, kind of an expert, maybe even, I I don't know, but probably the world's foremost expert on strange Lenten foods. Matthew, that's an unusual expertise to have, and thank you for being here to share it with us. It's my pleasure. So you wrote a piece um, back in 2013 about the 10 most wonderful and strange foods for Lent. And we we just found this piece to be really interesting. Um, A lot of people know, for example, that during uh, periods of abstinence in Lent when you can't eat meat, you can eat alligator if you're in certain dioceses, New Orleans and other places. But it turns out that there are some other animals that you can eat as well. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Well, of all the things on the list, probably the one that has the firmest canonical support as a legitimate Lenten food is muskrat. So uh, Catholics living south of Detroit who have eaten muskrat for time immemorial and a 2002 document from the Archdiocese of Detroit uh, confirmed uh, their right to continue doing so. That's probably one of the one of the strangest Lenten foods. Uh, of course, you know, a muskrat is a mammal. And a rodent, I presume. Is it a rodent? Well, uh, <laughs> I would call Probably. it a varmint where I'm from. <laughs> we would call it, it's a member of the varmint okay. genus, <laughs> according oh. to Nebraska taxonomies. Terrible. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've never, I can't say I've had one, but uh, I'm sure it has, I'm sure it has a strong, strong taste. That, that must. Oh, I imagine. The, uh, the strongest uh, tasting uh, animal I've ever had is antelope. And uh, I don't think antelope is approved as a Lenten food, but it does have a very powerful uh, scent. And I, I really urge your listeners never to try to clean an antelope if they shoot one. Have someone else do it. I, I once did this and it was disastrous. That's really good advice. And, you know, a lot of people probably were even considering maybe for a Lenten penance that they would themselves clean antelope on a, on a somewhat regular basis. And now they'll know not to do that. They can eat the muskrat instead, at least if they're in southern Michigan. Um, also probably gamier than an antelope, which to me, an antelope seems like a relatively clean animal. I mean, it's in the 
you know, it's in the dry air of the mountains or what have you. Um, but less clean to me seems the capybara, which is another kind of Lenten animal that people can eat. What's a, what's a capybara and where do they eat that? Well, the capybara is the largest member of the rodent family. Uh, they exist throughout South America. They're rather cute, kind of uh, stubbed noses, little legs. They don't quite look rodent-like. Since the since the 18th century, capybara have been regarded as a legitimate Lenten food. Uh, so there's apparently a papal bull uh, approving this practice. Uh, I, I hope it's not uh, a forgery in the vein of the donation of Constantine, but uh, we we at least have a papal bull, and so if we can't hold on to uh, the donation, let's hold on to this one. You know, South American Catholics, I guess, have been uh, embracing penance by by eating this dish, and certainly that has to be more penitential than the decadent practice I sometimes see in New York, where pious Catholics will have sushi on Friday. Right. Now, I know none of your listeners would would ever uh, do something so out of keeping with the spirit of Lent. Right, right. But uh, I, I can say I, I, I've I've seen it done. I've fallen prey to the temptation of oysters and scallops <laughs> on Lenten Fridays before, and felt nearly <laughs> that I should confess it. But I've never fallen prey to the temptation to eat a beaver during Lent. But that is also something that, that, that can be done, at least in some parts of the world. Is that right? Right. So this is a longstanding uh, practice in uh, certain uh, sections of Quebec. Some uh, anti-Catholic scholars have blamed the practice of eating beavers during Lent for declines in the beaver population. I think really the decline in the beaver population was pushed by fur trapping. And it was probably all to the good that someone made use of what was really waste meat. And anyway, beavers, they they cut down a lot of trees, and they cause a lot of problems. I don't know if you've ever had beavers on any land uh, of yours, but my family is a farm in Nebraska, and then, you know, the beavers are cutting down trees, they're damming up the creek. I mean, we just let them go about their business, but you can see how they become annoying. Yeah. So I, I would I would resist becoming too sentimental about any of these cute creatures. <laughs> you got to keep, you got to... We have to exert man's dominion. I have to tell you, I think I, I don't feel sentimental about the muskrat or the um, or the capybara, but I think about the Pevensies in the home of, of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and then I wonder if Peter would just take that great sword and chop off the tail and fry it up, and I feel absolutely terrible. And I know, obviously, you can't eat ta- talking animals, <laughs> but still, I feel feel badly a little bit about the beaver. But I would. I've read that a beaver tail is really quite delicious and can be a delicacy. Is that something that you've had before? You know, no, I haven't. Uh, my grandmother had probably the most capacious and Catholic palate of anyone in my family because she grew up on a tiny farm in Nebraska during the Great Depression. So I remember her talking about a, a practice of, of the family when they probably practiced in Lent where they would go hand fishing, or some people call it noodling, mm-hmm. where you reach under the banks of a of a creek or a pond under the roots of trees hanging over a creek and you reach back into those crevices and pull out whatever's in there. It might be often catfish like to hang out in those or maybe snapping turtles. And you're basically eating whatever uh, you can find that moves. uh, You know, that's, that's the kind of situation in which people were eating these meats, I think. That's what I wanted to ask. Do these (laughs) seem like varmints? I mean, as you said, these, these are, none of these are desirable animals. I mean, it's part of the idea that part of the way in which they came into the Lenten menu that they are, these are in some ways the protein that would be available to working class people. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Absolutely. And, you know, now we have uh, such a different society where there's, you know, a lot more meat of various kinds available. Really, our diets have changed a lot. But one thing I think is most striking is just the 
lifting of requirements for uh, Lenten abstinence from meat. You know, sociologically, that always bound Catholics together and showed in very simple human terms that they were one body. Right. You know, the Friday abstinence was something that would have held uh, throughout the year. When those requirements were lifted about 50 years ago, I think we probably lost something uh, sociologically. And then religiously, it's probable that we lost something too. I mean, currently, uh, you could correct me here, you're the canonist, but my understanding is that Catholics are required to give something up on a Friday, say, uh, even if it's not meat. Uh, certainly on Fridays in Lent, we need to give up meat. But for the rest of the year, that possibility of the alternative penance is um, – and, and I understand, I think, why the bishops did it. I think they felt that that had become something that had lost some of that um, some of that value. But there's definitely a movement, a, a resurgence that's part of a broader movement uh, of Catholics who want to see a return to those kinds of traditions and, and to the unity, as you point out, that they, that they catalyze. Right. And I think actually the Catholic bishops of England and Wales did go ahead and restore – uh, Friday abstinence. That's my understanding. And I know that a number of years ago, Cardinal Dolan uh, suggested that this would be a possibility in the United States, though I don't believe uh, anything, whatever, uh, has come of those suggestions. So I'm glad he mooted the idea. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, again for being here. You can read 10 Weird Wonderful Foods for Lent at firstthings.com. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. I hope we can have you on again and uh, have a blessed Lent. Thank you, Judy. So after we talked with Matthew, this whole muskrat thing was still on our minds. I, I don't think I even know what a muskrat looks like, but we couldn't stop thinking about people eating them. So we decided to look into it a little bit more. Our producer, Kate Vike called up Father Timothy Laveau, who is Dean of Studies at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit and a Michigan native. He told us how this dispensation started, and Kate asked him whether eating muskrat is even really worth it. Here's their conversation. So we were researching alternatives um, and dispensations for Lent, and of course, we ran across the case of the muskrat in Michigan. Can you tell me what is happening there? Where did this dispensation come from? Actually, there's no way of really verifying exactly where it came from uh, in terms of a dispensation for eating muskrat on Fridays. There's a couple different stories that have been circulated in terms of how they started to eat muskrat and whether, you know, where the dispensation came from. The French Catholics that came into Detroit, you know, back in the 1700s, the story is that the Native uh, Americans that were living in the area showed the French how to eat and prepare and eat the muskrat. And it's something in this area that's pretty plentiful. Uh, in the marshy areas uh, around the Lake, Great Lakes, and um, especially where I'm from, down in Monroe County, uh, around Lake Erie. And so that's kind of where it, it sort of started. There was a story that Father Gabriel Richard, who was the pastor of St. Anne's, who was, who was the first parish in Detroit, had given the people a dispensation uh, to eat it on Friday because the, the people was one of the few sources of food during the winter months. And for the poor, you know, especially that needed something um, when they're really, well, this is really frontier land. But one thing we do know is that it had been a custom for years and years and years of not only people eating it, but the custom of eating, being able to eat it on Fridays. You know, this question came up back in the 1980s. It sort of resurfaces every Lent, you know, because it's such an interesting and unusual uh, custom that people have. Uh, you know, in our, our own Archdiocese of Detroit, the diocese has recognized that this is a custom. Um, it's been longstanding. And so 
it's something that has been done and the church just recognizes that um, as something that can continue, you know, for the people in this particular area where the custom has been in place. So, okay. I'm going to interrupt this conversation for just a minute. Sorry, but being a canon lawyer, I really want to know how this dispensation works canonically speaking. Here's Dr. Edward Peters, a canon lawyer at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. Full disclosure, Dr. Peters has tried muskrat and he likes it. Dr. Peters? This is what's known as an immemorial custom. There are a couple of canons in the Code of Canon Law today. Canon 6 comes to mind, Canon 28. And basically those are recognitions that practices that have been observed benignly by the faithful for a long period of time are generally acceptable to the church. So one of the examples of that is right here in Michigan where we have had for at least 200 years, probably a little longer than that, at least 200 years, a practice of allowing people in the uh, Archdiocese of Detroit, particularly in what's known as the Downriver region of Detroit, to eat muskrat, or as it's sometimes pronounced, mushrat, on Fridays in Lent, uh, even though, as you said, it's a warm-blooded animal, is technically a mammal. Um, these are uh, areas where, where food becomes more scarce, more difficult to obtain, and it's, it's not exactly a delicacy to begin with, so if it keeps families fed in the late winter months, then let's go ahead and, and allow it. Okay, back to Kate and Father Timothy. And so people still eat muskrat today for Lent. I'm, I'm from Nebraska, and there I think it's pretty similar to other states, but we do fish fries or we do nothing, you know? So <laughs> do you have fish fries or muskrat dinners? or, or what's, Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, what's the common practice or what, what? No, I mean, fish fries are all over the place. Uh, let, let's put it this way. I would say all Catholics have fish on Fridays around here, but <laughs> there's, there's a select few who would eat muskrat on Fridays as well. You said you grew up in the area. So did you grow up eating muskrat pretty common, pretty often? Uh, I didn't grow up eating it because my mom won't prepare it. Um, it was something that's, I mean, we've always known about, and it's just been a part of the culture. And so um, now my dad, my grandmother prepared it. And so it was something that in his family they would have. My family's been in this area quite a long time. And um, my grandma would prepare muskrat on Friday, and my, my grandfather would kind of ceremoniously, you know, to to, uh, to say grace, would you know stand up and say you know Aramus uh, to get everyone quiet, and then he would for grace he would say God bless the muskrat, she's a fish, Amen. And so. Not only is there a custom to it, you know, we there's also a sense of humor about it. So you've had muskrat before. That that makes you unique in this conversation, at least. Can you tell me? <laughs> can you tell me what does it taste like? Yeah, you know, Kate. The only thing muskrat tastes like to me is muskrat. I I can't compare it to any any other thing that I that I've had. Um, it's obviously gamey, and it doesn't look very appetizing at all to people that aren't used to it. So I'm, I'm the academic dean at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. And I've, since I've been serving in that position, knowing about the muskrat dinner at uh, St. Charles Parish in Newport, I asked the transitional deacons, 
hey, if you, do you guys want to go to the muskrat dinner with me? I'll get you a ticket. And let's just say that every year there's sort of varying degrees of enthusiasm for my invitation. <laughs> so like this year, I had no takers. So I just went by myself. But in other years, I've, you know, f- four guys will come down with me or meet me there. And in fact, Dr. Peters, he came with me one year and he loved it. In fact, even one year, um, Dr. Peters even took some of the leftovers I brought back. <laughs> if a person eats muskrat for leftovers, mm-hmm. you know they're serious. That's so funny. So do you think, you know, it's such a long-standing practice. Do you think that this is something that will continue to be a part of Michigan's culture, specifically for like the Catholic community? Oh, I yes, I, I think so. I mean, it's you know, the muskrat dinner they go to, there's over over 400 people go to that. You know, I, I think for a person to talk to you about it, Kate, it's hard to, to I mean, understand the, the, the enthusiasm that people that eat muskrat have for it. And it is such a longstanding cultural thing. It's just a part of life here, but it's just, it's just a part of life that we have here that most people, let's say, don't share. So well, listen, Kate, if you're ever around the Detroit area, let me know and I'll see if I can't get some muskrat for you. I, I will may I may actually take you up on that. I am very intrigued, I will say. But thank you again so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. God bless you. All right. So this is CNA producer Jonah McKeown. And uh, who else we got here in the car? This is Michelle LaRosa. And Kate Mike. So we're going on a little road trip today because we're going to go down to Arby's to try the fish sandwich. A little background here. Uh, Recently, a little while ago, I shared this blog that was written last year with all these rankings of all these different fast food fish sandwiches. And I shared it because Lent was coming up. And I got a ton of responses from people saying, what about Arby's? Why didn't you review Arby's? Arby's has the best fish sandwich. Like, almost every response I got to this blog that I posted on Twitter were people complaining that we hadn't reviewed Arby's. Well, I will be honest, I had never had Arby's fish sandwich. Arby's slogan is literally, we, we have, have the meats. meats. Yeah, <laughs> not the fishes. Right. So uh, we thought it would be fun to take a little road trip, try it out. You've got um, Jonah, who is an expert fish sandwich taster, and then you've also got me. And uh, full disclosure here, I don't really like fish sandwiches very much. I will eat fried fish like maybe once or twice a year during Lent at a parish fish fry, but um, I can't remember the last time that I sought out a fish sandwich. Now, another fun fact about me is I really, really cannot stand tartar sauce, which normally comes on a lot of these fish sandwiches, so I think I'm going to go for a honey mustard instead. It uh, seems like a safe option. Okay, on so we're- fish? I, what, what would you recommend? Honey mustard on fish. Like oh, look, look. They're they advertising the fish Twitter. right there $2. on $2. the window. Limited time only. That means until Easter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it seems as though the Arby's one is only available during Lent. Yeah, it doesn't say when the limited availability ends. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. That's totally a Lent. Hey, guys. Hello. What's your Hawaiian fish option? What is it? It's yes. a um, crispy fish filet. Uh, okay. Cheddar cheese, lettuce, tomato, and tartar sauce. I'm going to do the crispy with the tomato okay. and no tartar sauce. 
And no sauce. No sauce. Um, could I please have the the spicy sandwich, please? The spicy fish sandwich. So here is the unwrapping stage. Okay, so here's what we've got. We've got a crispy breaded piece of fish on a nice bun with some lettuce and tomato. And I got mine without tartar sauce, but I've got a little honey mustard instead. I had to request the tomato. It came with lettuce, but I had to request the tomato. Oh. Which I had on one of the other versions. Okay. All right, now I am going to unwrap mine. Thank you. So this is interesting. The packaging says Arby's. We have the fish. Okay, so mine is the Cajun. We got a sesame seed bun, some Cajun sauce of some sort, and some lettuce on the bottom bun. This is a weirdly shaped fish. It doesn't match the bun at all. That kind of stresses me out. But it's probably out. more close to a real fish. I mean, think about how a fish is shaped. Fish are not shaped round. Wait. So Unless it's like a sunfish or something. <laughs> mm. Not bad. That's pretty good. Yeah, so mine is the Cajun, so I guess it's supposed to be kind of spicy. I guess it, I guess it is a little spicy. Mine just doesn't have a ton of flavor, period. If it had a slice of cheese, it would maybe be my new favorite. I bet you could request that. I bet I could. I like the sesame seed bun. That's mm -hmm. good. Does it make sense to you why people were so adamant on Twitter that you check out Arby's? Yeah, I mean, for someone who doesn't like fried fish, this is good. I can see myself coming back here again. Yeah, I think this is definitely a, a good option for people looking for a fish option during Lent that is penitential, but not too penitential. Yeah, exactly, that nice balance. Well, I'd say this was a successful trip. We appeased our Twitter listeners. How did you rate sandwiches on the block? Little fishies. Little fishies? From zero to five. I would give this a four and a half fishies. That's a very good rating. Kate, what about you? I'd give it a four just because I know my heart will always belong to McDonald's. Yeah, I, I think I'd give it a four too, which is a still a good rating, but I kind of wish I'd gotten the tomato like Michelle did. Yeah, you like upgraded your sandwich, and I think if I had upgraded it, I would have given it a higher rating. Oh, if rating. you swapped out, yeah, you could have gotten your cheese that you wanted. Well, Twitter, we hope you're satisfied, because we certainly are. I'm Jonah. Michelle. And Kate. We hope you have a blessed Lent. Hey guys, this is Kate again. We had a lot of fun with this episode, but we did want to dial it in just a little bit for this last segment. It is Lent after all. Muskrat and alligator aside, Lent is a particular time for silence, for conversation with God, and for conversion. It's entirely serious, and it's entirely personal. For this last segment, I asked J.D. to read an essay he wrote back in 2017 for First Things magazine. Here's J.D. On Saturday, I watched good friends carry a miniature white casket up the aisle of our parish church to be laid before the altar for a funeral mass. Their son was stillborn last week. Our parish had come to the church to pray for them as they laid their son's body to rest. My friends have entered the season of Lent in a profound way. 
During Lent, we remember Jesus, fasting and praying in the Judean desert. We remember that Jesus was weak and tired and alone, and that relying on the Word of God, he overcame the empty promises of Satan. Like Christ, my friends will likely feel weak, tired, and alone this Lent. C.S. Lewis said that grief feels much like fear, and I suspect they'll sometimes feel afraid. He also said that grief is an amputation, and I suspect they'll sometimes feel crippled. And like Christ, my friends will face temptations. They may be tempted to turn on each other. They may be tempted to turn from God. They may be tempted to pretend they don't need help, human or divine, when in fact they surely do. I suspect my friends will overcome those temptations by grace. But if they don't, I know they'll seek God's mercy, and I know he'll give it freely. During Lent, most of us offer up small sacrifices, pittances really, to spend more time in prayer. We limit our comforts just a little. We give alms, usually from our excess and rarely from our need. And somehow God, in his mercy on us, his pity for our pitiful sacrifices, gives these tiny sacrifices meaning and uses them to draw us closer to him. Sometimes, though, we see Lent as a proof of our endurance, an annual test of our strength and resolve as believers. It's easy to think that during Lent, our little sacrifices take us out into the desert to be with Christ. We don't readily see that Christ is the one who has come out in the desert to be with us. We often have trouble admitting that we are already in the desert, already weak and without food, and already tempted. Often we forget that Christ conquered temptation not for himself, but for us, so that we can rely on him to conquer Satan's lies, which are whispered to us in the moments of great suffering in the desert of this life. Lent, at its best, is a discovery that Christ is already next to us. We silence our distractions to discover the Lord's love, his steadfast presence, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. My friends have been driven into the desert of loss this Lent. I hope they will find that Christ is there with them. I hope that in their weakness they will encounter the Savior who can sympathize with our weakness, who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Many of us are in deserts of loneliness or mourning or despair or fear. We are thirsting for living water. I hope this Lent we will find the Christ who has come out to the desert to meet us. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Jonah McKeown and Kate Vike, and this week we have a special guest producer, Mike Washabaugh, in the D.C. office. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to all our guests on this episode, the Archdiocese of Detroit and Father Gabriel Richard for making muskrat Lenten dinners a thing. We'll see you next week.